Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Desident has the honor to present to you, for the first time in the American cabaret, a man who, within his own lifetime, has become a legend. He is actor, singer, author, lyric writer, composer. Tonight, he will sing for you a program of his own songs, old and new. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Noel Coward. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this week marks the 124th birthday of Noel Coward, who was born on December 16, 1899. And yes, his parents named him Noel because his birth came so close to Christmas. So it couldn't be more appropriate that my guest again this week is Oliver Soden, who is the author of a fantastic new biography of Coward entitled Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. This is the sixth episode in this series, and if you missed the other five parts, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. I want to thank all of our Patron Club members, such as Andy Wigginton, who make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the creation of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you, too, can become a patron. On this episode, Oliver and I discuss an amazing period in Coward's life where in 1950s America he experiences a major resurgence as a performer in nightclubs, on television, and in the movies. As well as how, in the midst of the McCarthy era, Noel Coward becomes a subversive force for gay visibility and acceptance. All of this comes about because of Noel's unlikely success at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. Play orchestra play, play something light and sweet and gay. For we must have music, we must have music to drive our fears away. While our illusions swiftly fade for us, let's have an orchestra star. In the confusion the years have made for us, serenade for us just once more. Life needn't be gray, though it is changing day by day. Though a few old dreams may decay. Play orchestra, play orchestra, play orchestra, play. Here we go. Yes, this is Coward, the cabaret star, on top of everything else. He started doing a show in London that quite a few people, such as Marlene Dietrich and so on, had done at the Café de Paris. And this led to an invitation to go to one of these tremendously uh, exclusive, rather gaudy nightclub hotels in Las Vegas and keep the wealthy residents in the hotel by offering entertainment for a phenomenal amount of money. And he made a huge success of it as well, which meant he went back. I think Ronald Reagan was one of the performers who had done this in the days before he became a politician. It was quite a known thing for world stars to turn up in Vegas for huge fees and do their cabaret show. But Coward, of course, had a very particular British, double entendre-filled, stiff upper lip sort of wit that was a tonic to McCarthyite paranoia 
outside America and something sparked and it was a sensational success for him at a time when he, you know, as I say, the playwriting isn't going so well. This is as Las Vegas is reaching its first peak, basically, as it's establishing yes. itself yes. as what we yeah. think of today as Las Vegas with the showgirls and the gambling and Frank Sinatra. It's a little pre-Rat Pack, but that's building here at this point. It is. And, and Sinatra was very supportive and attended and advertised it on the radio. And Judy Garland came and Zsa, Zsa Gabor came. And it became the place to be seen at, Coward's Cabaret. And I mean, Vegas, astonishing to read about Vegas in the mid-1950s, because as you say, it's just starting. But there are still great empty plots of land being built up. And there's a nuclear testing site not that far from Las Vegas. And it was quite fashionable to go to the top floor of the hotel and watch the mushroom clouds exploding above the, the desert for not, not all that safe a distance either. But of course, Coward is being paid by undeclared gangster money. I mean, it's astonishing to think of it. And he's meeting all these gangsters and finding them perfectly charming as long as they weren't crossed. But of course, it's his foreignness, his Britishness, his impeccably coiffed spruce style amidst all this bizarre, gaudy, money-spending world that is what hits the cabaret home, I think. And now I should like to sing you a song about a simple country girl who always kept her eye on the future. In a dear little village, remote and obscure, a beautiful maiden resided. As to whether or not her intentions were pure, opinion was sharply divided. She loved to lie out neath the darkening sky and allow the night breeze to entrance her. She whispered her dreams to the birds flying by, but seldom received any answer. <laughs> Over the field and along the lane, gentle Alice would love to stray. When it came to the end of the day, she would wander away, unheeding. Dreaming her innocent dreams, she strode, quite unaffected by heat or cold, frequently freckled or soaked with rain. Alice was out in the lane, whom she met there every day there was a question answered by none, but she'd get there and she'd stay there till whatever she did was undoubtedly done. <laughs> Over the field and along the lane, both her parents would call in vain. Sadly, sorrowfully, they'd complain. Alice is at it again. Do you think Peter Matz had a great deal to do with that success? I feel like listening to those albums that were made during that period, some of them are even one of them is a live album from Las yeah. Vegas. Coward's music swings in a way that I don't think it had landed before. Oh, I agree completely. In fact, that Noel Coward live in Las Vegas, and then he went on and did a, a New York one as well, was one of the albums I listened to incessantly when writing this book, once I discovered it. And it's interesting because those recordings of Coward's singing 
upbringing in the 20s now seem historical documents very interesting but impossibly out of reach. And the very sound of Coward's voice in the 20s, sort of the head voice, hooty and bizarre and Mm -hmm. falsetto a lot of the time, over those very 20s, early Disney sort of accompaniments, just seem of their time. Whereas those 50s arrangements that Peter Matz did, which are essentially big band and which swing and have saxophones, pitched against Coward's oh-so-British voice, which is deeper and gruffer with age, so has more strength behind it. I think that's irresistible. Though that dear little village surrounded by trees had neither a school nor a college, gentle Alice acquired from the birds and the bees some exceedingly practical knowledge. The curious secrets that nature revealed she refused to allow to upset her. But she thought, when observing the beasts of the field, that things might have been organized better. Over the field and along the lane, gentle Alice would make up and take up her stand. The road was not exactly arterial, but it led to a town nearby, where quite a lot of masculine material caught her roving eye. She was ready to hitchhike, Cadillac a motorbike, she wasn't proud or choosy. She was aiming to be was a pricked up, meet up, fly the night floozy When old Rogers gave her pearls as large as nuts on a chestnut tree All she'd say was fiddle-dee-dee The wages of sin will be the death of me Over the field and along the lane Gentle Alice's parents would wait hand in hand Her dear old white-headed mother Wistfully sipping champagne Said we've spoiled our child, spared the rod. Open up the caviar and say, thank God, we've got no cause to complain. Alice is at it again. I I was thinking the other day that Coward, as the British-toned singer in that recording, offers you the straight face and the almost sleaze of the orchestration tells you what the joke is in a curious way. It explains the double entendre. It's a sort of commentary. I just love that clash between his impeccable diction and the swing of the accompaniment that Peter Matz did for him. So it's a big shift in Coward musically. Absolutely. And that will, I think, impact what I think is an incredibly successful score in a contemporary Broadway way when we get to Sail Away. Exactly. Yes. He suddenly is writing a Broadway musical in a way that he didn't write before, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Of course, the other thing, just to finish off the Las Vegas period, is that this is McCarthyite America, which, of course, led to vicious homophobia because gay men were thought targets for blackmail, so they were fired in their droves from government. And an early novel by Gore Vidal, which was about a homosexual affair, was banned and so on. And here is Coward keeping an entirely straight face and making these explicitly homoerotic double entendre I mean, he rewrites the Cole Porter song, Let's Do It, with the line in Texas, some of the men do it, others drill a hole and then do it. Mr. Irving Berlin often emphasises sin in a charming way. Mr. Coward, we know, wrote a song or two to show sex was here to stay. Richard Rogers, it's true, took a more romantic view of this sly biological urge, but it really was Cole who contrived to make the whole thing merge. He said the Belgians and Greeks do it. Nice young men who sell antiques do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. 
Monkeys, whenever you look, do it. Ali Khan and King Farouk, do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Luella Parsons can't quite do it. She's so highly strung. Marlena might do it, but she looks far too young. Each man out there shooting crap does it. Davy Crockett in that dreadful cap does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. All famous writers in swarms do it. Somerset and all the moms do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The Brontes felt that they must do it. Ernest Hemingway can just do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. E. Allan Poe, ho, 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 did it. But he did it in verse. H. Beecher Stowe did it, but she had to rehearse. Tennessee Williams, self-taught, does it. Kinsey with a deafening report, does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. It's shocking even today in some brilliantly amusing way. And to just drop this calmly, this hidden, rather secretive world into that very charged atmosphere of 50s America. You know, this is the era of Arthur Miller's The Crucible, for God's sake. It's such a daring thing to do. And of course, is hysterically successful for that very reason. Exactly. And you can hear the audience falling out of their chairs. Yeah. It's a document that includes the audience's reaction to this very gay sensibility yeah, exactly. And even overtly gay lyrics, Belgians and Greeks do it, nice young men who sell antiques do it. It's startling, in hindsight especially. Yes. In Texas, some of the men do it. Others drill a hole and then do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. West Point cadets forming fours do it. People say all those gabars do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. My kith and kin more or less do it. Every uncle and aunt. But I confess to it. I've one cousin that can't. <laughs> Teenagers squeezed into jeans do it. Probably will live to see machines do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Each baby bat after dark does it. In the desert, Wilbur Clark does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. We're told that every hormone does it. Victor Borger all alone does it. Let's, do it. Let's fall in love. We know that both of the lumps did it, and they're still in their prime. McCarthy once did it. Took a long time. <laughs> Each tiny clam you consume does it. Even Liberace, we assume, does it. And of course, it's that point that put on a suit and make your cuffs impeccable and people will let you say what you want to say in a curious way. You know, he's British. It's that clash of sensibility that's so cleverly managed, I think. Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! Live in full color from Hollywood. Jubilee presents Lauren Bacall, Claudette Colbert, Noel Coward in White Spirit by Noel Coward, also starring Mildred Natwick with Brenda Ford, Philip Tong, Marion Ross. And this success in Las Vegas leads now to movie roles and television. He becomes the most unlikely American television star during this period. Yes, and again, for very, very high fees, which were necessary to lure uh, movie stars onto the smallest screen, which didn't have the kudos it would have in the era of Netflix. But a lot of his plays are done on American television with varying degrees of success, but nevertheless, they are done. And then he becomes that wonderful thing that still exists today, the British star who does villainous or eccentric cameos in American and British movies for high fees. Very clever. Absolutely. And does a TV special with Mary Martin during this yes. period. So they, they mend their relationship at least enough yeah. to do this TV special. Well, the only thing Coward was better at than arguing was making amends. I was really struck by that, writing about it, because he is this famous quarreler. But he's very, very good at offering the olive branch as well. And you can see that together with music, the show he did with Mary Martin on YouTube. Yeah. Together with music, together with music, we planned this moment long ago. Many a year beside and then both of us knew. Many a moon would wax and wane before this dream came true. Together with music, together with music, the thought of it enchants us so. When those Everything 
be divided. Watch us rise and shine, riding as high as a kind. Our hearts are fancy free, because at long, long last we happen to be together with music tonight. Gives you a very good sense of Coward, the musical performer of the 1950s. I mean, it is impeccably disciplined, almost sort of manic in its style. I mean, by this stage, he's got these bright, huge, false teeth, and he's dyeing his hair, and he's rather heavily made up. And there's something rather threatening about the wit and the mania of the energy. But I mean, he's dancing superbly. And it's a whirlwind of talent, that show. There's a medley at the beginning where you can just see this impeccable movement of his hands, the discipline of his style visually, you know, the whole package, how he looked, how he moved, how he shot his cuffs, how when he said something rude, he fiddled with an earlobe. I mean, you watch it. Every double meaning or risque sentiment, he fiddles with an earlobe. I mean, it's all impeccably done and sort of put together detail by detail. Senorita Nina from Argentina despised the tango, although she never was the girl to let a man go. She wouldn't sacrifice her principles for sex. She looked with scorn on the gyrations of her relations who did the conga and said that if she had to stand it any longer, she'd lose all dignity and wring their silly neck. She said that, frankly, she was blinded to all the over-advertised romantic charm. And then she got more bloody-minded and told them where to put their tropic palm. She said, I hate to be pedantic, but it drives me nearly frantic when I see that unromantic, sycophantic lot of sluts forever wriggling their guts. It drives me absolutely nuts. She declined to begin the begin, though they besought her to. And in language profane and obscene, she cursed the man who taught her to. <laughs> she cursed Cole Porter too. <laughs> From this it's fairly clear that Nina, in her demeanor, was so offensive that when the hatred of her friends grew too intensive, she thought she'd better beat it while she had the chance. After some trial and tribulation, she reached the station and met a sailor who had acquired a wooden leg in Venezuela. And so she married him because he couldn't dance. So surely never could have been a more irritating girl than Nina. They never speak in Argentina of this degenerate bandina who had the luck to find romance. Resolutely wouldn't It's amazing. I love watching that television special. Mm. And again, not so hidden gay subtext. Isn't it interesting how if one is proposing that Coward and others are at the forefront of bringing homosexuality, but also the camp humor, all of the rest of it into the mainstream leading up to the legalization, that they do it through risque wit. I mean, this is when you start to see the etymology of the word gay in its original sense of sort of joie de vivre and wit. And it's Coward who really is. I mean, as I said before, he's one of the earlier users of the word gay to mean homosexual. But you see 
see him sort of just folding it in. It's like vegetables in mashed potato when you give them to people to make them eat their greens. You're just folding in that world of humour and sex through being funny. That's how he got away with it. Because, you know, there are terribly explicit, rather worthy plays about homosexuality at this time, one by Joan Henry and another by John Osborne, that are so obvious and serious and slightly po-faced that they cause a lot of shock. And nobody turns a hair at what Coward is doing. And that LP, I mean, I say no, when nobody turns a hair. There were some viciously homophobic, very dangerous articles written about him and about his life on Jamaica and so on. But nevertheless, the cabaret records sell and sell and sell. So it is, it's interesting. And to position himself opposite America's sweetheart, Mary Martin, as the two of them together. And yeah. of course, she's a lesbian, which nobody knows, which is the other yes. amazing subtext when you're seeing it today. Yeah, you can pick out all these great, powerful women in Coward's circle whom he loved and supported, Gladys Calthrop, Clemence Dane, and so on, who were lesbian or bisexual, and realize, A, his welcome to them, which is to be expected, but also how the theatre is a world in which they can be so much more liberated, independent, earning their own money, powerful, and so on, than many other places. I mean, to use that modish term, the safe space, it was nevertheless one of the safest spaces. There's a book I hope will be written called Noel Coward's Women or The Women in Noel Coward's Orbit. Not that they can't stand up on their own terms, but just showing that that family that we're talking about is a sort of refuge. Very interesting. And a way to shine a light on some amazing women that don't get talked about very much. Yeah, exactly. The plays continue. Another of those probably ill-advised South Sea colonial plays, South Sea bubble in this case. And you make a point that that's playing at the exact same moment as Look Back in Anger. So obviously that is not going to position Coward in a great light with the British theatrical world. No, indeed. And worse still, were it to be revived today, which I don't think it could be because it is so explicitly pro-colonial and its view of these Samoan islanders, some of whom were played in blackface, essentially, some not is so stereotypical and they speak this terrible made-up language and are shown to be kind of sex-crazed and dreadful. And then meanwhile, on the same night, in the same month and year, April 56, John Osborne is leading the angry young men into the fray with Look Back in Anger, which instead of, you know, Coward's curtain is opening to a sort of colonial veranda and Osborne's curtain opened to a young woman ironing in a rather crummy flat. And what is interesting is that unlike Coward, John Osborne had been privately educated in the British sense and was not as entirely working class as you could argue some of Coward's life had been. But nevertheless, his theatrical aims and political interests were working class man being angry and the welfare state and all of that. And it casts Coward yet further into the desert with his sort of upper crust Edwardian demeanour. That's so interesting to contrast the two of them that way, where they start and then what their art is all about. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, Kingsley Amos is another of the angry young men who is as posh as you like. You know, in in some ways, compared to Coward, who believed in what you could make yourself into rather than in holding on to your roots, to use the title of the Arnold Wesker play, which is another in this sort of generation of working class lives being put onto the stage. It's an interesting clash and Coward makes the row worse by (laughs) criticising them in public at any opportunity, while in private actually managing to maintain grudging but eventually loving friendships with them. And in the end, he appears on stage in an Arnold Wesker play and he admired look back in anger. 
And another thing to point out here is that the angry young men, almost without exception, and indeed the one eminent angry young woman, Sheila Delaney, who wrote A Taste of Honey, which Coward did not like at all, are mainly, if not exclusively, heterosexual. It's mm-hmm. quite interesting to think of British theatre in these terms, which are cliched, nevertheless revealing. And that is that if you think of almost every major figure in British theatre from Oscar Wilde onwards, they've been homosexual. You go through Oscar Wilde, Somerset Maugham, Frederick Lonsdale, Terence Rattigan, Noel Coward, Binky Beaumont, the producer. And then suddenly here are this sort of rather thrusting heterosexual world of Harold Pinter, Samuel Beckett in the absurdist line, John Osborne, Arnold Wesker, Kingsley Amis, and so on, whose sort of acrobatic promiscuity with women in some ways becomes the stuff of gossip columns. And that whole world of the implicit, the double meanings, the camp, coward's world is out in the cold until suddenly the early 60s, Joe Orton, Peter Schaeffer, Edward Albee, all three of them homosexually sort of returning black humour, camp humour back onto the Broadway and West End stage. So it is interesting how Coward's popularity ebbs and flows with the tide of homophobia and acceptance. It's sort of in sync. I hadn't seen that so clearly, but it's revealing. Do you think that shift back and forth is, obviously it's tied to the politics of the times, but Mm -hmm. is it caused by that or is it just happened to reflect that? Were there gay playwrights that just couldn't get on at that period? because they were sort of swept away by this new wave of straight playwrights? It's partly fashion, I suppose. And I'm sure I'm talking in very kind of crude terms and that there were gay playwrights in the 50s and so on. And it's interesting that the 30s and the 50s, the period of financial depression, tie in with the sort of worst homophobic attack that Coward had to put up with. And there was a sense, I mean, I've seen it argued that in British history, the sort of laissez-faire sexuality of the Second World War, where what went on behind the blackout curtains, stayed behind the blackout curtains, and people were too busy winning the war to really bother about homosexuality. And all of that sort of clams up again. Happens to women as well, who found in some ways a meaning and a purpose during the Second World War that was then taken away from them as the men returned and so on. So it's these periods where society sort of opens out and then clams up. And Mm -hmm. Coward is always there for the opening out and always cast out when the clamming up happens. It's fascinating that... And of course, the homophobia in Britain is absolutely rife. The 50s sees some very high profile imprisonments, court cases, and in the theatrical world too, because John Gielgud is arrested for cottaging and so on. And Benjamin Britten, the composer, is investigated by Scotland Yard, and James Agate, the theatre critic, is being terrifically blackmailed. And there is a very real danger, probably the point in Coward's seven decades where the danger is at its most real is the 1950s. So I think it is a deep need for discretion. Cecil Beaton, too, is investigated. It's a nasty time of suicides and imprisonment among the young and all the rest of it. And Coward reacts not by banging a drum. He won't sign petitions calling for the release of gay men. He thinks that gay men need to be an awful lot less promiscuous and open and flagrant. He believes in a rather anti-brotherhood, anti-community way. He believes in discretion and becomes rather sort of snooty about the gay community, in quotes. So it's nuanced, I think, interesting. And of course, he can run away to Jamaica or Switzerland to escape all of that. But he is part of that generation where let's just not talk about it, let's not be public. And yet he couldn't be more public in some way. So that's the weird dichotomy of it. I mean, I've said this before, but it's not hiding in plain sight. It's revealing yourself through disguise, isn't it? Mm. Exactly. And now I should like to sing you my own personal version of a very old Scottish ballad. 
on yon bonny banks and on yon bonny braes, where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond, where me and my true love spend many happy days. On the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond, for I'll take the high road and you take the low road. And I'll be in Scotland for ye and me and my true love will ever meet again on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch And on yon bonny braes where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond, where me and my true love spend many happy days on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. For I'll take the high road and you take the low road. The high road is my road, the low road's a slow road. I'll guarantee you, I'll be there to see you on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. For there with my honey, my bonny healing laddie in his wee bitty kilt of Caledonian plaidy. He's my new love, my true love, my little sugar daddy. As we're hiccuping through the heather, together we cry. I'll take the high road and you take the low road. I'll be in Scotland for ye and me and my true love and other friends as well. Such as Katie, Connie, Frankie, and Johnny prepared for a roll in the hay. Nonny, nonny, on the bonny, bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Oliver and I will return for part six of our conversation. Happy birthday, Noel. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.